Well, guys, I'm so excited for the final night here of WinCon. Man, I'm going to be honest. I was back there. I was about to just like kind of lock in and like kind of get ready for my sermon. Then the worship started. I was like, man, I got to get out there. Man, that, the, can y'all give it up for the worship team? Man, they have just like crushed it. Man, I've been so personally just encouraged, man, by just their, the way that they've been, lead, they, been leading. So we're going to take a hard right turn real quick. Um, one of my favorite movies is the movie Taken. All right, anybody ever seen the movie Taken? All right, okay, nice. So if you know the movie Taken, uh, it's about this, uh, it's, uh, Liam Neeson is in it. So if you don't know the movie, you might know the meme, but he's, he's basically in this movie. And, it, and it's, I love it because it's amazing and ridiculous at the same time that anybody could do this in real life. But basically, here's the premise of the story. All right, here's the setup. Premise of the story is uh, Liam Neeson's character, he's a former CIA agent, kind of the man and all that. But then he, he retires. When he retires, he wants to kind of grow his relationship with his daughter, but his daughter is kind of estranged from him. And so um, he wants her to spend the summer with him, but instead she decides to go to Paris. And he's like, you shouldn't do that. But she goes anyway. She gets there. Unfortunately, she gets kidnapped. But she has a time to make one phone call. So who do you call but your CIA dad, right? She calls him, right? And somehow some different things happen. He gets on the phone. He figures out, gets on the phone actually with her kidnapper. He has this unbelievable line. You know, he's like, I have a particular set of skills that make me a nightmare for somebody like you. And it's just unbelievable. He just kind of goes off, right? And then it's just this crazy thing where somehow he's able to figure out exactly where his kidnappers are and all these things. For the next two hours, he's just going all over everywhere, just bad guy through bad guy until eventually this one scene he kicks through the door, and he gets in there, and there's two people. As he walks through the door, the two people are his daughter and her captor, the kidnapper, right? And as you would imagine, because he's the man, he figures out a way he kills her kidnapper, right? And then he gets his daughter back, and he rescues her, and their like, relationship is mended. It's like a really heartwarming you know, thing. But um, here's my question. How did they feel... When he walked in the room, how do they feel? Well, the reality is, it depends on who it is. His daughter, when he walked in the, in the room, his daughter was overwhelmed with joy. She could not believe it. She could not believe that her dad had actually come for her. That her dad had actually take, went to great lengths in order to come for her, and now he was going to come to her and rescue her. But her kidnapper, he didn't feel that. Because he knew that he was not coming to rescue him, right? Why? He's the same person. The reality is, he's, he's both a very loving father and he's a very skilled assassin at the same time. He's the same guy. But how you meet him is dependent on your relationship with him. Here's the reality. One day, Jesus is going to walk through the doors of history again. And we are all going to meet him. And the world is going to meet him. And how we meet him is dependent on our relationship with him. See, Jesus is an unbelievable, loving, kind, generous, humble, sacrificial savior. But Jesus is also a warrior king and a righteous judge. And the world is waiting for his return. Romans 8 says that creation itself is groaning, waiting for the return of Christ. We see that as his saints, we are eagerly waiting for him to come back. And so tonight we're going to talk about the return of Christ. The return of Christ and the kingdom that he is going to set up. So 
If you, what's interesting is the return of Christ is actually talked about over 300 times in the New Testament. It is one of the most talked about doctrines in all of the Bible. But, but let's be honest, how often do we think about it? If I'm honest with you, I basically, I rarely ever think about the return of Christ. But I think this promise can be one of the most encouraging and motivating promises in all of scripture. So tonight, I want us to actually turn to the book of Revelation. So it's at the very back, just keep turning. We're gonna look at two chapters. We're gonna look at Revelation 19 and 21. And we're gonna look at, see that Christ is a king and he is returning to set up a kingdom for his people. Now, I'm just gonna be honest with you guys. When I found out that I was preaching on Revelation, I was pretty nervous, right? I've heard that Revelation is the sermon that people most wanna hear and preachers least wanna preach. But I'll be honest, after studying for the past few weeks, I have been unbelievably encouraged. And my prayer is that just a little bit of what God has taught me, can, he can encourage you with because we can read Revelation and it can be kind of crazy, confusing at times. You're like, what is going on here? But when you zoom out, actually the, the overall message of Revelation is pretty clear. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to win to remain faithful to him. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to win to remain faithful to him. And that's basically the point. And what we need to understand in this uh, is that Revelation, like any book of the Bible, is written to specific people for a specific purpose. It's written by the apostle uh, John. He was exiled. And he's writing back to these churches who are experiencing a ton of persecution. So at this point in the Roman Empire, there's a lot of persecution happening. Basically what's happening is Christians are being crucified. They're being impaled on stakes and lit on fire. Like they're being thrown into the Colosseum. Their families are disowning them. And so naturally they're beginning to wonder and waver and, and beginning to think, is it really worth it to follow Jesus? And while I'm going to be honest, I've never experienced anything like that. I've had plenty of moments where I have wondered if following Jesus was worth it. And I have begun to waver. So if, that is, if you've been there or you are there, man, this passage is for you. And it can seem at times like evil is winning and chaos is everywhere, but this passage teaches us that the world will not always be that way, that one day Christ will return, that he will have his final victory, and that he will reign as our true king. And because of that, we can endure. So if you have your Bible, let's look at Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. This is what it says. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen with white, white and pure, we're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the, fear, of the fury of the wrath of, the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, there is a ton in this passage. And I'm just gonna hit on a few things here to help us understand the return of Christ. So the scene opens that heaven opens and there's someone sitting on there on a white horse. His name is Faithful and True. And this is Jesus coming back. It says Jesus is on a white horse, which is a sign of his victory, his purity, his royalty. He's called Faithful and True. He's faithful to his promises. He's true, meaning he's the real thing. It's really him. And it says he is 
returning in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now, this is really interesting. You see, the first time that Jesus came, he came in order to suffer the wrath of God for sinners, and now he is coming to judge and make war on those who oppose him. But what is important is that he does it with righteousness. This is vital. This is vital to understand. In our world today, we have seen corrupt leaders use their authority for selfish gain. Whether that's men of power using their authority for sexual pleasure or monetary gain, or when we see men like uh, Putin attack uh, Ukraine or Hitler attack various nations. These are all sinful men using their power for selfish gain, but that is not at all what's going on here. Here it says that Jesus is making war in righteousness. This is a just war. This is Jesus coming to rightfully make war on all those who have rebelled against God and his people. But next it says that his eyes are like flames of fire. Now what this means is that Jesus knows all, Jesus sees all, and Jesus judges all. There is nothing that will ever be kept hidden from Jesus. No action, motivation, or thought. And here we see that Jesus has seen everything from all eternity. And he is coming back against all injustice. And the reality that Jesus sees all, knows all, and judges all is both unbelievably comforting and terrifying. It's comforting for this reason. It's comforting because no one will ever get away with anything. Hear me. No one will ever get away with any injustice and evil. Anyone who has ever unjustly treated another human, anyone who has ever committed physical or sexual abuse, anyone who has ever treated someone harshly because of their skin color, anyone who's ever committed murder, rape, whatever, what you need to know is that Christ sees all and he is the defender of the weak and he will avenge any injustice. So if that has ever been you, if you've ever experienced injustice at the hands of anyone, know that Christ saw it. And whoever did it will never get away with it. So it's comforting, but also terrifying. It's terrifying because no one will ever get away with anything. See, Jesus doesn't just see the abuser. He also sees me. Jesus sees everything that I have ever done, everything that I have ever thought, everything that I've ever done in secret that I thought no one knew about, Christ saw it. And that should be terrifying to us. The Bible is clear. There are no secrets with Jesus. And if we sin against a holy God, the punishment is death. Now, I got to stop here because, man, doesn't this Jesus seem very different than the Jesus in the Gospels we know and love? Right? Like the Jesus in the gospel, this guy is like, this Jesus is like riding in on a war horse against his enemies. And that Jesus died on a tree for his enemies. Right? A couple of things that are helpful to know here. First, this is the exact same Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But when Jesus was dying on the tree for me and you, he had these exact same eyes. He didn't go to the cross blind, not knowing what you had done, but he went to the cross knowing everything that you had done. His eyes of fire has seen everything and knowing all that you had ever done, he still chose to die for you. It is actually good news for you that Jesus sees all because that means there is nothing that anyone could ever bring up that would make his love for you waver. On the cross, all of God's wrath was put on him instead of you so that now all that is left for you is his love. So you have trusted in Christ. You don't have to fear his return. Instead, you should eagerly expect it. But second, love and wrath are not opposite emotions. The opposite of love is indifference, not wrath. Wrath and anger can actually be the natural outflowing of love. Think about a person that you love the most. When I think about my wife or my kids, if I think about someone hurting them, 
What, what, ra- what comes up inside of me is anger. That's not because I'm indifferent. That's because I love them. And love, when you see someone is hurting you, it, it comes out, you, you have this anger, right? Think about Jesus, the most loving human, the most loving person ever to exist. When he looks down at those who are being abused and hurt, how does he respond? With anger, not with righteous anger. So he's coming back with love and anger, but then it says this about him. Listen, this is crazy. He says, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. You're like, I've already heard of all these names. What's he talking about? Here's what he's saying. In that day, if someone knew your name, it was a way to show they had power over you. The fact that he has a name that no one knows means that no one can have power over him. And that means, that means this too, that there is more to Christ than we even know. For all of eternity, we're gonna be finding out more about him. Verse 14 says that the armies of heaven are dressed in white and all around him, which that probably means angels and saints. But what we see is, man, they do not participate in the war. They only spectate. See, Jesus did not need our help or assistance when he came to redeem, and he will not need our help when he comes to reign. Verses 15 and 16 give several different examples of Jesus judging and ruling that are based in the Old Testament. All you need to know is Jesus is not playing around. He's coming to execute justice, not as a power-hungry maniac, but as a father who loves his children. He sees them being attacked, and he's coming to make things right. But in order to set up a kingdom of love and peace and justice for them, he has to get rid of all evil and injustice. And verse 16 ends with, uh, it says that he has a tattoo that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is not just some cool tat. What this means is that Jesus is in complete and total control that he is over all others. That means King Jong-un in North Korea is not in control. Putin is not in control. Joe Biden is not in control. There's only one person who is in control and is sovereign, one true king, one true Lord, and he is over all, and one day he will return for his people. And one day he will execute perfect justice and he will establish his kingdom on earth. Verse 17 through 21 shows the battle. The battle between good and evil, right? This is not like Avengers where you see like everybody showing up, this crazy battle at the end. No, this is total domination. Jesus shows up and it's over. Sin and Satan are done forever. This is how David Platt describes this passage. What a powerful picture of Christ. On a white horse, faithful and true, the righteous judge and messianic warrior who sees all, knows all, and judges all. He's crowned with diadems and shrouded in mystery. He comes to conquer God's enemies once and for all, to end the history of the world with the revelation of God's word, to rule the nations as he brings the wrath of God upon this world dominated by sin and Satan. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He came in on a humble donkey riding into Jerusalem, but he's going to return reigning as a king on a war horse. This is our glorious king. Which leads to the question, if this is the promise of Christ returning, then how does this impact the way that we live? A couple things I want to tell you here. The first thing is it leads us to endurance, leads us to fight with endurance. So there's a girl named Florence Chadwick. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of her. But in 1952, uh, she decided she was going to swim from the coast of California to the, to the Catalina, Catalina Island which was um, 26 miles, okay? That's, if you haven't swam, that's a lot, right? And she, so she goes out there swimming and she starts swimming for 15 hours straight. She's swimming 26 miles. She's been swimming for 15 hours straight and all of a sudden this big fog kind of comes in. As the fog comes in, all of a sudden she looks to her mom who's on, on the boat and she's like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I'm getting tired, you know? And she swims for like 30 minutes more and she's like, I just can't do it. And they bring her out and they put her in the boat. When she gets in the boat, she finds out that she was less than half a mile from the shore. 
She had swam for 25.5 miles. All she had was half a mile left. And when she got in, she said, all I could see, when she got in the boat, they asked her, like, what happened? She said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I could have made it. Two months later, she tried again. But this time when the fog set in, she kept swimming because she made a mental image of the shoreline in her mind while she swam, and she made it all the way. She kept going because she had envisioned the finish line, and it enabled her to endure. Let's be honest. The Christian life can be hard. It can feel like you're swimming in a fog. It looks like there's chaos and evil everywhere. Those who are not living for Christ seem to be prospering. And it can lead us to want to waver and wonder or maybe even quit. But what God does here in Revelation is he brings back the curtain to give us a a picture of the finish line. That one day, the end of history, Christ will return. He will return in glory. He will come back in righteousness. And he is coming to make war against all injustice. And what we know is looking to that day enables us to endure today. There's a guy you might have heard of named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was, uh, he fought against, um, he fought against uh, slavery in, uh, in England. And he fought against slavery for 40 years. Day in and day out, his family um, was, was hurt, right? He had a lot of death threats. He was publicly shamed over and over again. So, so what, what can cause him to keep going even when it looks like chaos and fog around him. Well, he knew a kingdom was coming. He knew a kingdom was coming with perfect justice. And that allowed for him to fight for justice now. See, it's actually when we look to the kingdom that is coming, when we look to that day, it allows us to endure today. So that means for you, you can continue to read the word. You can continue to sacrificially love others. You can continue to walk in purity in your relationships. You can continue to confess sin, continue to forgive, continue to fight for justice, continue to pray, continue to follow him, even in your suffering, not because it's easy, but because he is worth it. Because we know he's going to return and we can look forward to that day and it allows us to endure today. That he has given us a vision of the end and so we can continue to go through the fog. The second thing, it causes us to live with urgency. And here's why. And this should honestly break our hearts, guys. Tonight, we are talking about the glorious second coming of Christ. But right now, one third of the world has not even heard about his first coming. One third of the world does not know that Jesus has already come and died in their place so they could be with God forever. And this is a hard truth, but what we need to know is that heaven is not the default state of people's eternities. Everyone, no matter how good they are, have sinned against a holy, loving God. And punishment for sin against a holy, eternal God is eternal separation from God, which I know sounds really harsh and extreme. But oftentimes the punishment is not just based off what you do, but who you do it against. For example, me and Josh are good friends. If I punch Josh in the face... Like, I wouldn't do that, but if I did do that, like, that would obviously hurt our relationship. But the consequences wouldn't be huge, right? I probably wouldn't get a lot of trouble. If I did that, then if I turned and I punched the president of the United States in the face, right? I would get in a lot more trouble, right? Now, why is that? I did the exact same thing. The reason I would get in a lot more trouble and probably get thrown in the jail in that one is because I did it against a higher authority. And because I did it against a higher authority, there's greater consequences. 
What the Bible teaches is when we sin against a holy, eternal God, the gap between Josh and the president is not nearly as big as the president and the creator of the universe. If we sin against an eternal God, there are eternal consequences and punishment. But there's good news. There's really good news. The good news is the king who we have sinned against is the same king who came and took the punishment for us. That's the good news. Here's the problem. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. It's only good news if it gets there in time. And there is a whole world who has not heard. And because they have not heard, we are called to live with urgency. To urgently share the gospel boldly and broadly because we don't know when Christ is going to return, but we know once he returns, it is too late. And we don't go out as Americans trying to westernize the world. No. We go as ambassadors of, Christ, of the king, sharing them with them the good news that he has come for them and he will come again for them. Now, no, one big question is, we have, we talk about the return of Christ. When's he coming back? When's he coming back? Now, I gotta be honest with you. After two weeks, I don't have it figured out. I don't know when he's coming back, all right? That's kind of the point, you don't know. But Matthew 24, 14 does give us this promise. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus promised he won't come back until the gospel is proclaimed to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And since he hasn't come back, his mission is not finished. And so we go. So the question is, for you to consider is, is he calling you to go? Maybe for a few weeks over city project, maybe after you graduate for a couple of years, or maybe for a lifetime. But I firmly believe this. I believe this with all, that everything in me. This is why I do what I do. I believe that college students will be a big part of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Here's why I believe that. Because historically you have. In the 1880s, in the 1880s, there was basically this, um, this kind of like Bible study that happened for like a month. There was like 200 students that were coming together for like a month. At the end of that, 100 of those students decided that they wanted to be a part of missions, that God was calling them to urgently go all over the world. What started with 100 of them over the next 40 years changed, grew to 20,000 college students. They went all over the world sharing the gospel. It was the largest move, uh, missions movement the world had ever seen. And this was their battle cry. Their battle cry was the evangelization of the world in our generation. They were literally wanting to finish the task of the Great Commission. One of those was a guy named Adam Judson. You might know Adam Judson. He's the uh, second missionary ever to leave America. George Lyle being the first, a former slave who went to Jamaica. But Adam he lived with both urgency and endurance. Adam he came to Christ in college. Afterwards, he set sail to Burma, and he was there for 38 years. When he went there, there were no known Christians. For this first six years, he labored and shared the gospel, saw no one come to Christ. He experienced unbelievable suffering. His wife died, seven of his 13 kids died. He was imprisoned and tortured for two years. He once um, was asked, like, why do you stay? Why don't you come back? He said this, I will not leave Burma until the cross is planted here forever. He endured faithfully and shared the gospel urgently. And now almost 200 years after he left, there are now 4,000 churches and 2 million believers there. 2 million people who are eagerly awaiting the return of Christ because a college student said yes. And here's my question. If he was, if God sent 20,000 college students then and his mission is not finished, 
who is he sending now? And the reality is so many of you and so many of us over the years, God has actually sent hundreds, hundreds through all these different church plants. If you go to the Go Now Center out back, we have different of our, uh, some of our missionaries that are, that are uh, on the field and, and, there's, and you can see some of the statistics and different things that they're doing in prayers. It's amazing. So I encourage you to go do that. But I asked some of them, I asked them this question. I said, how did the return of Christ actually impact your decision to go? And this is what they said. Mara said this. She said, the return of Christ is a reminder that tomorrow isn't promised, that we are to live each day to make his name known no matter what we are doing. Delaney said, we know there is an end coming, so I want to make sure that when the end does come, I have told as many people as I could about Christ. Jillian said, the return of Christ motivates me to go because it makes me realize that eternity is coming, making the only worthy way to live my life now is to live as if Christ will return quickly and people will be apart from him if they don't believe. Those are students who are sitting literally right where you were in the last year or two. And they said yes. They delayed internships, jobs, possibly marriage in order to go because they knew that the mission was urgent. We had a, um, somebody told me the second city team, which they go overseas all summer. They were in South Asia this summer and they went out in these villages and they share the gospel. And they share the gospel with this man and this man, they got to share the full gospel with him. And then he heard the gospel and he said, like he was like really interested and he said, okay, like how can I learn more about this? Is Is there a church around here? And the missionary had to tragically say, no, there's, there's not a church within hours of here. How, how tragic is that? How tragic that he wants to know. And I feel confident the Lord is sovereign. He's going to get, he can get the word there. He, he can do it. God's not dependent on us making it happen. But right now, I know there's a third of the world that is born, live, and die without ever hearing about his first coming. And I believe God is calling some of us to go. Not begrudgingly, like, oh, man, I got to do it for God. Gladly, we get to do it for him. So we have seen because Christ returned, we are called to live with endurance and urgency. But lastly, because of the return of Christ, we are called to live with hope. See, Christ is not only coming to execute justice and judge the world. He's doing all of that so that he can then set up a kingdom for us. We see this kingdom in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. So you can turn that Revelation 21, 1 through 4. You got to skip over a couple chapters. I want you to hear, this is amazing. Just think about this. <coughs> it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. <clears throat> For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, John sees this unbelievable vision of the new heavens and new earth. Now this word new is really important here. There's, a, there's two words for new in Greek. One means brand new. The other word new means is kainos, which means remade. That's this one. It's like this. Imagine I had like this like broken down like Corvette and it was like, you know, it was like the wheels are falling off. It's rusty and all these things. And somebody took it in the shop and then they like kind of gave it a new engine. They gave it new tires. They painted it. They gave it new, everything. When it came back out, you'd be like, I like kind of recognize it, but that is a different thing, right? That is what God is doing with the world. God is saying to you, what we see now 
is nothing compared to what he is doing next. You imagine the, the Grand Canyon 2.0. You imagine the, the Alps or the Rockies, how beautiful that's going to be. Can you imagine the, the taste of a Chick-fil-A biscuit? It's going to be unbelievable. What we know is God is not, is not doing something totally different, but he is renewing, redeeming everything. And it says in verse 2, look at this, this is crazy. In verse 2 it says, it's coming down. I think it's a game changer. Heaven is not some place we go float in the sky. Heaven is coming down and rejoining earth, and it will be completely remade and renewed. And because of this, there's two things that we can look forward to with hope. The first is, this is a kingdom with no more suffering and no more pain. Verse four says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And this is, this is huge. The promise here is that suffering will end one day. There'll be no more tears, no more disappointment, no more depression, no more anxiety, no more cancer, no more abuse, no more relational conflict, no more chronic pain. All brokenness of the world will pass away. And the same hand that was pierced for you will one day wipe away every tear from your eyes. Honestly, I mean, I I know I've shared this story a lot, but as some of you know, I've had 10 surgeries the last few years, knees, hips, I have a chronic nerve problem. And praise God, it's gotten a lot better, but it's just gotten gotten a little better. You know, it's just gotten a little better where I can kind of uh, do life. But to know that one day, I'm getting that completely renewed, remade body. My knees aren't going to hurt. My hip's not going to hurt. I can run. I can do all those things. To know that is what is coming for me. It gives me so much hope. To know that, okay, yeah, maybe in my 20s, I like had all these surgeries and I don't get to do all the things I want to know. But to know as a Christian, you're never missing out. The best is always yet to come. And to know that um, some of my friends that uh, tragically, their child passed away. To know one day, they're going to get to hold her in their arms again. Completely renewed and remade. Or for some of you, to know that one day you're not going to live with the weight of depression or intrusive suicidal thoughts in your mind. You're going to be free of those. To live in a world without loneliness, without relational conflict, without any racism or sexism. I don't know if you've been following what has been happening in Memphis, but... His name's uh, Tyron Nichols. I'm not exactly sure how to say it, but man, he's tragically killed. To know that you're never going to turn on the news and see things like that again. And honestly, think about this. It's not going to be any more sin. Honestly, a world where we don't compare ourselves to one another. That we'll be in a room and we'll just be able to enjoy one another and not compare ourselves the whole time. To know that as a Christian, the best is always yet to come. So because of that, we can live with hope. Now, Here's what I need you to hear. I've already said it, but I just really need you to hear this. Especially if you're going through suffering right now. You need to know this. Your suffering has an expiration date. Your suffering is not your future. Right? Your suffering is light and momentary compared to what is coming for you. So yes, you might be unbelievably, have unbelievable brokenness right now. Your body might be racked with pain. Your mind might be overcome with anxiety and depression. But whatever you are going through is not your future. But honestly, guys, this isn't even the best part. Verse four is not the best part. I want you all to look at verse three. This is the best part of the whole thing. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. 
See, the best part of heaven is not the absence of suffering, but the best part of heaven is the presence of God. We see the dramatic finale of the Bible. See, God has always wanted to dwell with his people, but because of sin, he could not be in our presence. In the entire Bible, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21, is a story of how he is getting sin out of the way so he could be with us. But now we see that sin has been taken care of, evil is gone, and so we can dwell with him. Chapter 22 says we actually get to see him face to face. No longer by faith, but living by sight. A couple, a couple, uh, a couple um, years ago, I did. Um, I led the City Project trip to Denver. Denver team, love you guys. So it was great out there. So we led the Denver team, and it was the first time I had really been gone since I like had um, since I had you know kids, or um, that I've been gone for a very long time since I had kids. And so, you know, went out there in Denver and it, and it was good for a little while. The first like five or six days, I was loving it. You know, it was like awesome to be back, just hanging out, sharing the gospel, all that. But around down like seven or eight, I was like, you know what? I'm kind of ready to get back home. I'm kind of ready to see my family. And now it's great while you're up now because like, you know, you can like call them, you can FaceTime them, all these things. It's great, but it's, you're just, it's different. You're not really like there, you know? <clears throat> and so day nine, we come back. And so I'm coming back in, but unfortunately, like, you know, like my, my family wasn't here in Raleigh at that point. They were actually staying in the, in the mountains of North Carolina. And I told them, I told my, you know, my, my son was like, well, he really didn't understand. But like me and my daughter, you know, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm coming back. I can't wait to see you. And so we, we flew in that night. And our, of course, our flight got delayed. We flew in and we got back home at like midnight. So literally I come back home at midnight. I go home, get in my house. I sleep for like four hours. I get up at 4 a.m. I get in the car. I drive three and a half hours and I remember walking up to the door. So I'm walking up to the house they're staying in. My, my wife knows I'm going to be there, but my, my kids don't. I remember walking up to the door. And my, my kids are in there. They don't see me yet. And I open the door and walk in. And I just, I just, I can remember this. I just remember seeing my daughter, Joni, just seeing her. And at first her eyes were just like this. Like she just didn't know what she was like, what? She just looked at me. And then she did this kind of crazy, like little dance thing. And then she just ran up and jumped and just gave me this giant hug. And it was just such an amazing moment. And I think what was so amazing was, was this. I know she was like so excited, just so eager and excited to see me. But the reality is this. I think I was actually more eager and excited to see her. I think sometimes we read Revelation 21 and we think, man, I cannot wait to see God. But who did all the work to see us? God is the one that is eagerly excited to return and be with his people. He can't wait to see you. Here's what you need to know. At some point, Jesus is going to step through the door of history. And we're going to see him face to face. And he's going to bring us into his heavenly kingdom. It is the final promise in all of scripture. So we eagerly await. Can't wait. Guys, we have been living for him, living for this man that we've never seen, but one day we're going to see him and we're going to dwell with him and be with him forever. So the promise is Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to defeat sin and evil forever. He's coming back to judge the world and he's coming to set up his eternal kingdom where there will be no more sin and no more suffering. So the first thing I want to say is to everyone here, I don't know who you are, but you're, Whoever we are, you're going to meet Jesus one day. And you're either going to meet him as your loving, sacrificial savior or the righteous judge. This is not, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but I, I just want to make sure you know the reality of it. And he, he has already done everything necessary for you to get to be with him forever. 
And so my prayer is that if, if any of you tonight, that no one leaves here tonight without knowing that Jesus is their savior and not their judge. And we would love, we would love, love, love to talk to you about it. I promise you that. But the second question for you is, based off the return of Christ, how are you going to live? I want you to listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. This is what he said. <coughs> Sorry. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. We are called to live lives with the return of Christ and his kingdom always in view. So my question is, for you to consider is, does your life make sense if Jesus returned tomorrow? We don't know. It might be before I finish my sermon. It might be tomorrow. It might be 100 years. It might be 1,000 years. We have no idea. But the question I want you to think is, how would you live differently if you actually really believed he could return at any time? I'm speaking to myself just as much as y'all. If I actually believed that Jesus could, could, could come through eternity and we would see him, man, it would definitely make me live with more urgency. And so one of my prayers is, God, help me actually just believe this promise is true. Help me live a life that reflects that. So I want you to think, about, man, how is he calling you to live in light of his return? Maybe he's calling you to fight for holiness in a specific area of your life. And you can endure because you know that day is coming. Maybe he's asking you to share the gospel with a friend back on campus. Maybe he's asking you to do city project, to move overseas when you graduate, to go with church plant. Maybe he's asking you to leverage your career to serve those who have never heard. Maybe he's asking you to fight for justice or serve the poor in some way or continue to hope in him even when suffering is attacking your body. I don't know what he is leading you to do, but I do know he is going to return. And we eagerly and expectantly wait for him to return. But until he returns, we live for him. Guys, the entire Bible ends with this promise, Revelation 22. This is the very end of the Bible. This is what it says. It's talking about Jesus. It says, he who testifies to these things, which is Jesus, surely I am coming soon. Amen. And the church says, come Lord Jesus. So there's this word you might've heard of. It's called Maranatha. Maranatha is actually an Aramaic word that means come Lord Jesus. Maranatha was what the early church, the church I talked about earlier that was getting persecuted, that was getting crucified, that was getting beaten. This was the word that they would do to greet one another. Maranatha, Maranatha. What we see is the final word of the Bible was the first word of the early church to one another. Why? They wanted to remind each other to live with endurance. That yeah, you're going through it. Yeah, you're living in a world of chaos and injustice, but keep going. There is a finish line coming. He's going to return. They wanted to remind each other to live with urgency. Maranatha, live with urgency. Why? Because there's a whole world that hasn't heard. Until he returns, we go. And they wanted them to live with hope. Surely, surely he is coming soon. He's a God who makes his promises and he keeps them. He's going to come back one day, but until he comes back that day, we we live with endurance, urgency, and hope. Here's what I want you to do.
I want you to think, how is God calling you to live based off this promise? How is he calling you to live differently based off his promise tonight? And here's actually how I'll do it. I want you to actually turn to the person beside you. I'm gonna give you a second. I'm, I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna give you a second. I want you to turn to the person beside you and I want you just to share with them how you believe God is calling you to live differently based of his promise. Let me, let me pray for you guys and then let's spend some time talking to one another. Father, we, we love you. And Jesus, um, we can't wait to see you. That one day we're gonna see you with our eyes and it's gonna be glorious and we cannot wait. But until that day, Jesus, you're calling us to live with endurance, urgency, and hope. God, I pray that we'll have the Maranatha mindset of continually reminding one another that you're coming back, you're coming back. We're struggling, telling each other, you're coming, he's coming back. Keep going, he's coming back, he's coming back. And so God, we, 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 I pray this truth, this promise, we just you'll press it into our hearts and help us live this way. God, I pray specifically, I feel like maybe there's somebody here who feels maybe like God is calling them to go overseas, but they feel like, no, I'm not the person. I can't do that. I'm not whatever enough. I pray that you remind them that you are present with them, that God, that you will empower them to do whatever you've called them to do. So God, I pray that you will just help all of us live with, God, just help us live with endurance, urgency, and hope, Lord Jesus. And we cannot wait to see you. Come, Lord Jesus. In the name I pray, amen.